Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, hello, and welcome to Mapping the College Edition, a podcast where we explore the landscape of the college theater world and try to demystify this daunting audition process. I'm your host, Charlie Murphy, director of MTCA. That's Musical Theater College Editions. And today, we've got another fun-in-the-sun kind of show lined up for you. Danny Feldman, artistic director of Pasadena Playhouse, is on the pod today, and he is one impressive young man. Uh, We have a really wide-ranging conversation, touching on a lot of relevant topics in the American regional theater, including some new topics that we really have not talked about yet on the show. Um, And this is going to become a little theme of our next few episodes, as I have the great Kate Hamill coming on next, who is also a big regional theater person, one of the most regionally produced playwrights of the past decade. So it's regional theater month at mapping the college edition i guess um as far as our mtca world goes our seniors are still deep in application and pre-screen mode at the moment we just finished a great west coast weekend with dance and song monologue classes as well as a pre-screen and headshot filming opportunity in la we're looking forward to coming back out west to maybe we'll go see something in pasadena playhouse um in a few months for our west coast mock auditions and then la unified a couple months after that so west coast we love you and we'll be back out there soon. Um, Most of our students right now across the country and across the world are really feeling the crunch um, as they're in application mode and pre-screen process. And so I'm just sending some love and encouragement as you are all on your grind out there. Um, Things in my world are really good. Solvay has started reading to herself recently, which is now one of my favorite things in the world. She memorizes a book uh, based on the page content of each page, you know, the pictures, and then she knows what the words are. And then she turns the page and just says the word on that page or very close to the words on that page, despite barely knowing what a letter is at this point. Um, You know, like any good actor, she's off book for her books. It's very cute, and uh, we're having a great time in this household. I hope all of your falls are going well. If you celebrate football season or the Jewish holidays, then Lashana Tova and Mazel Tov to you all out there. And with that, let's get to this episode with Danny Feldman. Well, we are so excited to have Danny Feldman on the podcast today. Uh, Danny has a BA in music education from UCLA. He was the executive director at Labyrinth Theater Company and is now the producing artistic director at the Pasadena Playhouse in LA, which recently received a Tony Award. We're pretending like we're holding up that Tony and shouting it out. We're so excited for them. Um, Danny, welcome on the pod. How are you doing today? I'm wonderful. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here with you. 
we're delighted to have you. And, and really, I think it's going to be an interesting and unique perspective, not to set the bar so high that you have oh, to be boy. both interesting and unique, but I think uh, you're going to be able to do it. But I'm going to start you off the same way we talked about all of our artists. Um, if you can remember your pre-college days, 16, 17, or whenever you started sort of figuring out what might I be doing in this business, what were you thinking about? What led you to UCLA? What were you thinking your career and your path might have been back then? Yeah, I would say, so I was a late bloomer in the world of theater. I, I was fortunate enough to um, have parents that wanted to go to the arts. They would have to like kind of save up to go to it. But I had my formative artistic experience was the National Tour of Fiddler on the Roof when I was very young mm-hmm. um, and also Phantom of the Opera, uh, at that which did a three-year stint in LA. And um, those were sort of formative experiences. But at the same time, I was a classical pianist. I was a little kid playing piano since mm-hmm. third grade or so. Um, and those collided basically my junior year of high school. So it wasn't uh-huh. until I understood there was a pathway in that. Um, and and the high school, my high school theater department was doing Spoon River Anthology and they needed a pianist. And a bunch of people said, well, he plays piano. And I became the music director, I say in uh-huh. air quotes, of that uh-huh. show. And that was really the first time I think my two sort of this fun thing over here and this thing I was practicing classical music kind of merged together, but also, you know, all the Disney musicals, um, the, you know, the animation, they weren't on stage yet at the time and, um, Disneyland and all of those fun things. I liked putting shows on in my backyard. So did you picture, you know, music education, obviously there's a chance you might teach music. Was that the goal? Did you think you might be a music director? Was that something that came into your mind as you were looking at school? Yeah, I never really wanted to be a teacher. I I taught piano lessons starting even in high school. I taught kids piano lessons, but I never really wanted that. The reason I ended up being music ed is because I was interested in music directing. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, at UCLA at the time, or I'm pretty sure now still, they don't have a music direction undergrad. And so I remember sitting with an advisor and they were like, you should do music ed because you'll get conducting, you'll get, you'll learn all the instruments, you'll be, you'll be, you know, up to speed on the music mm-hmm. side. But it was really all an excuse because UCLA at the time, the, the-, the music department um, had a musical theater workshop, which was open to the whole school. There was no musical theater major in the theater department at mm-hmm. the time I was there. It, there now is. I think it formed right when I was already there. Mm-hmm. But um, that was really the only way if you were a student at UCLA, you could do a musical. And I wanted to be involved in that class. I'm still friends with a lot of the folks in, the, in there. And that was my, it was like, whatever I have to do to take this one class. If you want me to be a music ed major, I'll be a music ed major. I don't care. Um, And that was really, and that's also where I started producing, meeting a group Uh of friends and saying, hey, let's do some other things while we're here, self-producing. That idea of like, whatever you need, I feel like that's like a, the mantra for a producer. I didn't, especially early yes. on, you're like, what do I need? Do I got a box office? I got a whatever. I'm going to, I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to be your producer. Um, but talk me through. So how does a potential music director end up becoming an executive director? How, so talk to me a little bit through that journey of from there to labyrinth. What happens as you graduate? How are you going to end up, you know, with these big fancy highfalutin positions that you're in. Yeah, I'm 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 probably like the the emblem or the signal of there are no straight paths and that and I certainly didn't never in my wildest imagination thought I would be in this seat that I am now. Um mm-hmm. and I wasn't even trying for it. It sort of happened um by doing one thing at a time that laid on top of each other that took me here. So I while I was at UCLA, um I started working on a couple student productions. And one of them um, led me to a group of friends that said, hey, we are producing 
outside of UCLA, um, this musical in the 99C theaters in LA, and we got uh -huh. a bunch of money and we're going to put on a world premiere musical. And that musical happened to be called Bear, B-A-R-E, which mm -hmm. many people now know it's been done all over the place. It's been off Broadway a couple of times. And um, it was four of us, five of us. We were all under the age mm -hmm. of 25 and we put on a show and um, they sort of looked at me and were like, can you do the checkbook on this? Could, someone needs to write checks and do payroll and doing this. And I was a full-time student. And I remember uh -huh. sitting in my living room, you know, writing checks to the cast and not knowing what the hell I was doing. And we ran for nine months in LA. I mean, it uh -huh. was a pretty hefty run in uh, the Hudson Theater. And that was really when I started what now led me to a journey of producing. Uh -huh. um, and it frankly started with the mantra that my college musical theater professor, John Hall, would always say, which is dumber people than you have done this and done it well. <laughs> Okay. So it was like, I don't know how to produce. I'm just going to figure it out. And uh -huh. I did. And we, you just learn by doing and not being afraid of it and being curious, remaining, you know, understanding your vulnerabilities and understanding what you don't know yeah. and being curious to figure it out. So that led to a couple other job, other um, opportunities. We formed a little production company. We produced a couple different shows. Um, and then when I graduated, I kind of needed a grown up job because that wasn't going to pay the bills. Um, I had a small stint as the vocal director of the Pussycat Dolls when they were a rock oh show at the Roxy, a burlesque oh show. My. That should have right been in the bio. I should have stuck I that know. in. No, I don't tell it. That's a secret. Um, and then uh, right after that, I became I got hired as the company manager of Reprise Theater Company. Mm -hmm. Reprise, of course, is sort of the was the West Coast encores, if you think of it that way. Mm -hmm. um, and so that actually was thrilling because I was in the heart of it. I had a lot of responsibility at a young age. And we were putting up these shows in two weeks and was working with, you know, Kelly O'Hara and Rachel mm -hmm. York and a mate, Carly Carmelo, and just these extraordinary talents putting on these musicals very quickly with big orchestras and all of that. So I learned a lot by doing that um, and, and had a whole lot of fun. And it really fostered my love of musical theater, which is my number one passion in my life at the moment. Um, and after I was there for eight years or so, and it was, I was the, became the executive director of that company and uh -huh. it was time to move on. I thought everyone should be in New York if you do theater at least once. Mm -hmm. um, so I made a crazy decision and gave nine months notice. No one, my parents lo lovingly told me no one has ever given nine <laughs> months notice to a job. I basically like, like having a child. Of, yeah. Yes, exactly. At the end of this season, I will be leaving uh -huh. and moving to New York, not knowing what the hell I was going to do mm -hmm. um, and started getting really panicked about three months out because I did not know what I was going to do or how I was going to survive. Yeah. Your second and trimester I, uh, was very normal. Yes. <laughs> and I um, cold applied for a couple jobs. And one of them was to be the executive director of Labyrinth Theater Company, wow. John Ortiz and Philip Seymour Hoffman's Off-Broadway Company. And I got the gig. Um I guess I asked good questions and I, I was the only one, just note for everyone, um, tax forms. So nonprofits, there's a little lesson for everyone. Nonprofits, which most regional theaters uh -huh. are, um, if you're a nonprofit, your tax forms are available to the public uh -huh. and they basically tell everything, what the people get paid and how much money you spend on shows versus education programs and all of that and who your donors are. And I looked at it as you do all the time, you should. Um, and I was the only candidate that actually looked at it, which really uh -huh. goes to show how bad the candidate pool was, I think, <laughs> not how good I was. Um, I mean, this is a little bit like, so I, I don't know, and we'll get into some specifics of what an executive director is, what an artistic director is. We'll do some of that, I think, um, really next. But um, for those who don't know the level of these positions, I think it's a little shocking to hear 
hey, you have a degree in music education. You had done this run, this little run, immediately hired as company manager already. feels like a nice, like, wow, how do you qualify for that? And then jump to executive director and then jump to this big, fancy New York City executive director. Crazy. That's some leaps. There's like two big leaps in there from from having a BA in music music education. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that that you know it matters. I mean, it's certainly when I hire folks now. When I hire, you know, everyone from from casting, you know, musicals to hiring production staff and this, it's really my approach. And I think more and more people these days, it's not about your resume as much anymore. Mm-hmm. More about what you do, how you present, and what how you're able to articulate and what you're able to accomplish. So it's not, uh, you know, I, I've never been bound by that. In all of my roles of executive director, both at Labyrinth and at, um, at Reprise before that, I always had some artistic involvement also. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. I always crossed over in a weird way. And not everyone does that. I recognize yeah. that now. It was just sort of the situations I was in um, yeah. at Reprise. Jason Alexander took over as artistic director my last couple of years, and he was really busy one year, and I planned a Richard Uh Rodgers festival. Uh And I don't even remember that being like, is that weird that the executive director is creatively um, planning that? Uh Um, And it just happened. And same at Labyrinth. I I started helping pick plays, and I was always involved in casting. And and, um, I think I never saw myself in a box, and I saw myself as sort of a catch-all producer, and I did a little bit of everything, and that certainly was was helpful in in my career trajectory. Well, and maybe maybe that leads to what is this kind of unique position that you're in now, which which, there's an element of this merge together, right? But maybe for those who who you know maybe are younger listeners or people still in college who don't necessarily understand the way that some of these nonprofit companies work, what is the traditional role? of an executive director maybe so if you weren't crossing over what was the executive director and then what would an artistic director do normally in these kind of companies? yeah it's a, it's a weird you know we don't see it that much in our in corporate counterparts right you don't mm-hmm. see apple or nike or any of these companies have this dual leadership model there's usually mm-hmm. a ceo right and how how the regional theater evolved is um the professional regional theater would start with an artist that was like, this is my vision for this theater company. I'm picking the shows, I'm casting, I'm responsible for everything the public touches in an artistic way, right? Yep. The brand of the entity. But as in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, as these regional theaters started growing up in a lot of ways and getting more sophisticated and, oh my God, we need marketing departments and we uh-huh. need ticketing systems and we need fundraising and we need subscriptions. It's like, who the hell's going to run all that? And so a second leader was brought in, the managing director, executive director, Mm -hmm. that worked very closely. It was a marriage with the artistic. And in the best versions of those relationships, it is a marriage that it is the artistic director isn't just alone picking shows and that other person's just doing the business. Mm -hmm. They are actively working close to each other. You do budgets together. You look at things together. You talk about challenges together. You fundraise together. Um, and so it's a collaboration, um, which is unique and our art form is all about collaboration. So it makes sense. Um, some theaters, my theater passing a playhouse when we, they were looking for my role after my predecessor left, they merged the positions. Uh-huh. And so I basically am responsible for on the artistic side, everything artistic, everything education that we do. And on the management side, everything, finance, uh-huh. uh, ma- you know, marketing, fundraising, um, the building, facilities, ticketing, everything like that. So do you I have like a COO? Do you have someone below you that can I have, do some so of that? I don't have a COO, but I have a senior leadership team. So I have a head uh-huh. of production, a head of marketing, a head of fundraising, and basically a head of administration and finance. Yeah. So we all work as a leadership team in a unique way. And not a lot of theaters of our size function this way. Yeah. Um, it's a unique model. It's It's... 
possibly tailor-made for me or yeah. I kind of inhabit it in a different way. But and I you think just don't sleep all, it off, basically. I No, I do. Well, some right now, no, you're right. <laughs> um, no, no, no. I, I work very hard, but I'm yeah. passionate about what I do. I mean, so yeah. it's, it's not – and I have opinions on everything. And I frankly – I'm not just an artistic director who like says, oh, I don't like that poster for that show. Uh-huh. Um, I, I have skill in fundraising and marketing and those other things. I'm not one thing. Yep. Um, and I get off on the collaboration of other people and smart people running my, these departments and I get to work with and play with. Well, and like, can we talk about that skill set a little bit? Maybe especially for our young artists who go, I think I also, I'm good at math. Or, you know, so many of these say, I want a double major. I've got this other thing. I want to study performance. Often most of them um, who are listening, that's at least where they start. Not unlike you, where you I want to study art in college, right? But what were the skill sets that made you think, hey, I can be a company manager and then interview to be an executive director? Like, what did you bring to the table beyond your artistic ability that you felt yeah, like, hey, I, I'm qualified for this? It's a good question. I, I think... Looking back, I I can see that very clearly, but I I do want to lift up that in the moment going through it, I didn't know what the heck I was doing, right? Uh I mean, we all feel like we don't know what the heck we're doing. And the reality is you get to positions, you know, I'm fortunate enough to be in this position now. I was standing on the Tony stage just two months ago, and Mm -hmm. I will tell everyone as I sat there before I had to go up, I was thinking... I don't know what the hell I'm doing or why I'm here. Uh Um, I had an out-of-body experience. It stays with you uh, throughout your whole life, no matter how old you are. Mm -hmm. And you just realize when you look around the room, I think the thing that changes is you realize no one knows what the hell they're doing. We're all figuring it out as we go along. um, And that is just the secret there. So for me, looking back on it, I always was fascinated with how things work. I am in general. I like taking things apart and understanding them both Mm -hmm. in, you know, from machines to science to space to everything. And I think with shows, I was always fascinated as a kid with how does this work? Um, I'm fascinated by it today in different ways of, of when I see an actor who's just extraordinary. I've just been on auditions the last couple of weeks or mm-hmm. the last two days and you know some amazing performances that I can't get out of my head in an audition. I think a lot about what did they do? What did they mm-hmm. do differently than the five people before them? What, uh-huh. what makes... When someone on stage just captivates you, what is it? Can you enumerate it? Can you talk mm-hmm. about it? Some of it is is ephemeral and you can't, but how? what words can you use or thinking about it deeply? So I've always been that, taken that approach in everything I do. So when I see a musical or I see a show, I'm always going, oh, how did that moment happen? How did Elphaba fly? Oh, it's a crane that she does this. Uh-huh. This happens. So for me, it's the same thing with how does payroll work? I don't know how payroll works. It sounds boring to me, right? But you literally go figure out how payroll works. It's not that complicated. Mm -hmm. So it really started by seeing a need in a group of friends of um, someone has to like do this part and none of us want to do this part because it sounds boring to us. And I was like, oh, that sounds interesting to me. I'll figure it out. And that's basically it. It's sort of figuring out something, taking the time. I think, I think where a lot of people make mistakes and I certainly did along the way is being too overconfident, um, and not Mm -hmm. being curious or humble Mm -hmm. to say to yourself and to the world, I actually don't know how to do this, but I'm going to work really hard to figure it out. Mm -hmm. And when I'm wrong, someone please tell me I'm wrong and steer me and being open to mentorship and listening to others who have been in those positions before, because that's how you learn. So I think that's sort of how I 
laddered my way through it. And when yep. I didn't know something, I went and found someone who did know and asked yep. them a bunch of questions. And the confidence to be that curious and vulnerable. I mean, Brandon Victor Dixon on the pod uh, earlier. Yeah. And he would say every time he takes a new job, he like just takes the producers out and he's like, tell me everything you know. I'd love to, I'll take you to lunch and I just want to learn everything I can learn from you. I was like, that's, that's right. like such boldness to, to say, know. you I know, mean, yeah, it I've does. It takes vulnerability and it takes boldness in a way. But I also think... Um, I don't know. Our, 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 our theater folk, we're a generous people. Yes, I we mean, we help. are by far. I think yeah. I've, I have rarely, rarely in my career working with hundreds and hundreds of artists and designers and everyone, I've rarely encountered someone who wasn't willing um, to sit with you. And I think yeah. it's because we're, we're all not exactly in it for the money or doing it for the same reasons you go into other careers. Yeah. And I think we all feel that same curiosity that we either felt as a kid or still do to this day and love sharing it, right? Yeah. I've never asked an artist, come speak to high school kids about this, where they have said no. Uh-huh. It's never yeah. happened. And so I think that same spirit of, of collaboration with each other and, and um, you know, a, an actor who would come to me and being like, how does your marketing work here? I'd be like, go mm -hmm. talk to our marketing director, right. come on up. Yeah. So I think we're, we're unique in that way and folks should take advantage of that. It's so smart. All right. Well, tell me, what does a, a day in the life of a Danny Feldman look like now? Like, what is now in this unique position tailor-made for you? You're not sleeping at all, right? I mean, is it all just asking for money? I mean, what when you're not doing a podcast, what are you doing at noon on a Friday or whatever? On noon? Well, that's a really good question. Noon on a Friday. Um, my life is a little chaotic because I do so many different things and I... Um, I have different modes I get into, which is really kind of interesting because when I'm in production or I'm in tech or I'm in previews, my life looks very different than when I'm not. Mm -hmm. And when I'm in season planning mode, um, my life looks very different. I'm reading a lot more. I'm, you know, so I, it, it, it kind of ebbs and flows. Right now, we're in a unique moment. We closed a new play on Sunday, this past mm -hmm. Sunday. We started rehearsal for our next play on Tuesday. And two days this week from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m., I was in auditions for our second play of the season. Mm -hmm. um, so that was a little bit artistically what's going on. And while you have we're your fingers in each of those pies? Or are you you're in oh, the yes. starting rehearsal and you're in the auditions? You're oh, really yes. in all of the I was, Yep. I'm at first rehearsal, the first read-through, mm -hmm. checking in with the director daily, um, in rehearsal. I pop, you know, we're, we're lucky enough we have this big campus where I'm sitting in a room doing auditions and we're in between people and I run out and go jump in and check in on Amy uh -huh. Brenneman and rehearsal for her show and watch 10 minutes of it and then go back out and then have to make a phone call to a donor. And so there's a lot of that. You're doing a lot at, and I have great support. I have a, a you know, to, to help me navigate my life. Sometimes I don't know where I'm going and someone just pushes mm -hmm. me in a direction. Um, but you know, we, yeah, it, it's it's up and down with with um, membership campaigns and donor events. Yeah. We have a big donor event launching our season next week, so I'm doing programming for that. So I'm uh -huh. on the phone with those folks, and so you're doing a little bit of everything. It never gets dull. Um, uh -huh. When we have the sprints, I call them my sprints, is when we're in previews or tech, where um, it your brain it has to be focused on one thing at one time to do it really well. So yeah. it's very hard for me when I'm in those weeks, um, which is coming up in about three weeks. Um, to be able to do the fundraising and the marketing calls yep. and all of this. Um, and I've learned over time to, to um, measure what matters, right? Be, be uh -huh. The important things in that moment are what that show needs 
And some shows are going to need a lot of me. And some shows I have amazing people on it that aren't going to need as much of me. Mm -hmm. So being able to assess that, but prioritizing, um, this is the most important thing. And I think we've had some degree to success because we've really been relentless about the quality of our work and uh -huh. that the environment we're creating for artists to make that work has been become very important and crucial to our success. So that to me becomes, you know, knowing your values, knowing what's important yep. to you. When I have an artist introductory meeting, yet there's an emergency with the show, I'm going to bump that meeting because I have to spend my time focused on the show. Yep. Um, and so just getting better at that. I think the more you do it, you navigate and figure it out. Although I will say, I still feel like I don't know what I'm doing. It's still very much, you know, every year's a new thing and you're like, oh crap, we're doing this now. Well, so, especially if we just went through COVID and whatever the other oh, challenges yes. will get into that. But um, yeah, th th this year particularly, it feels like many theater companies and I think our, our company, a lot of different places are going, are we refinding stability? Are we getting our feet back on the ground in a real way? You know, but it's a, a whole rocky world. Which, uh, we'll it's a new world. We're on Mars now. Um, can we talk a little bit, you mentioned season selection. I think that's something that's a lot of young actors when they envision themselves as artistic yeah. directors, which I'm sure many of them do, are really fascinated with the idea of like, how does that work? I mean, how much say do you have in it? Obviously you have like a mission statement for the, the theater company, but do you have individual visions for each year's or do you do year arcs? How do you consider this year versus what we've been doing for the past five years as you look at, you know, the theater yeah, and where it's, it's going? It's the number one question I'm asked, and you would think I would have really good answers by now, and I do not. Um, <laughs> it is the hardest, ridiculous thing that all of us have to do. I spend so much time thinking about it that you have no idea. Um, it, it really depends. I mean, I think each theater is sort of a box that you're operating in or a body of work or what are your core values of your institution, right? So the, the, um, the public theater in New York you see a play, you understand why it fits yes. in their box, and you also understand when it's out of their box, right? Mm -hmm. You understand that brand of that theater is very different than Goodspeed, right, mm -hmm. or Paper Mill. Um, so the, when you come into a theater and you're the artistic leader, you are determining what that box is. Yep. And especially when you're new, and I've now been there six years, six seasons, um, although two of them were pandemic and one of them was my predecessor, so it's really like three and a half, four. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you are trying to show the world while you're also figuring it out. Mm -hmm. um, someone gave the best analogy someone gave me is you're, you're making a puzzle for everyone, but you got to start with a little piece of sky and a little piece of ground and a little piece mm -hmm. of this mm -hmm. so that everyone starts understanding what you're doing. And it's going to take a little bit for people to see. So at the Playhouse, you know, we have through lines, for instance, of is this a Playhouse show or not? And and we really get that from the fact that we were given an honor in 1937 of being the State Theater of California. Mm -hmm. It did not come with money. I say that every time. There was no big check. There's no money every year for us. It mm -hmm. was just this great honor because we were um, one of the oldest theaters in America and we were doing good things apparently back then. Mm -hmm. um, and so when I came in, I was trying to connect the work on our stage to that idea. And frankly, I didn't know how the hell to do that. But what it started with, I started thinking about what is California represent in America? It's the fourth or fifth largest economy in the world. It's a leader. It's an innovator. There's a sense of adventure and scrappiness when you think of California versus the East Coast. Um, it's one of the most diverse places on the planet. It is, um, you know, reinvents itself constantly. So I was thinking of those words and those ideas and how does that translate to the experience of seeing a show at the Pasadena Playhouse. Mm -hmm. And so for me, um, bold, surprising, energetic 
pushing at the seams, being on the front edge always. Those are the words and ideas that I think about. And when I do my litmus test of would we do that show or not, I'm often thinking about that. Um, and then areas of specialization, um, we had always done musicals. We had done a couple new musicals, but had done some revivals. My passion in life and love is the great American musical um, uh -huh. and preserving it and moving it forward. And so I knew when I came in, that was going to be a core element and started an initiative about that. Um, I also, my work at Labyrinth was exclusively with new plays. And I think being a forward-thinking, innovative theater company, how do you move the American theater forward? One of the mm -hmm. primary ways is by new work and new plays and nurturing new writers and giving audiences a, a chance to engage with something that is out of their norm. Mm -hmm. um, so new plays is an area of focus for us. And then... Um, I, there's classical plays that I love that that may or may not be in the public knowledge right now. I was shocked that when we just recently did Sunday in the Park with George, the vast majority of our audience answered a survey saying they had never seen it before. Uh -huh. um, and so there's also a great service now of reintroducing work that was meaningful and that it's yeah. at its time was on the front edge of the American theater and was pushing. Yeah. Um, and how do we connect that to today? And that's sort of a, a major through line in all we do. Um, we may be a historic theater. We're over 100 years old and we're in a beautiful old building, but everything we do is connected to the world today, mm -hmm. right now. What are we doing now? How, what, are, what is the headspace of our community right now? What are artists saying right now? Um, how are they engaging in the world? Um, and that's really our focus. So everything feels very relevant and contemporary, even if it's an older piece. Um, so when I put a season together, I'm trying to balance all of that. And that's just the artistic front. Yep. Then there's like, how do we pay for it all? Uh huh. What you're doing how together. Are, Normally there'd be a little conversation, but you're having that conversation all by oh, yourself. I, it's it's full blown Jekyll and Hyde. I mean, it's like that comedic thing which I, I always laugh at. In Jek yes, the song in Jekyll and Hyde where he's like singing with himself and his hair's down over here, and he's, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's like what goes on in my life almost every single day. Um, and you know, ticket sales. What our audience is wanting. How are we building up a membership base? Mm -hmm. um, how are we going to market this thing? So. All of that makes it very challenging. The truth is there's no one answer. You have to weigh a lot of, if we go this way, this will happen. If we go yeah. this way, this will happen. But being very clear with oneself about your values, yeah. about your the quality of your work, the kinds of shows you want to do, the risks you want to take, um, and making sure, I mean, it happened this season. I, I was very early. I'm always late planning seasons. You can ask everyone around me. Um, my entire staff gives me so much crap for this, but... This past season, um, twenty the season we just announced that we're starting mm -hmm. in a couple of weeks, I got to last November and December, and I was like, "Y'all, you're gonna be, you're gonna love me. I have a season for the first time by December thirty first. Mm -hmm. It's gonna be great. It's awesome." And I told my senior team the season, and I was like, "I am taking two weeks off for the holidays, and when I come back, we're just gonna dive in." And I came back and was like. I don't want to do that season. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, I slept on it. I thought about it. And I was trying to appease different things that just didn't feel true to me. Uh -huh. And so I redid about half of the season <laughs> uh -huh. between January and March. Um, so we were late yet again. But um, I wanted to get it right. And I'm, I think we did get it right. I'm very pleased with what we have coming up. But um, I'm now entering the, the period of time where I'm thinking about 24, 25. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. I will say just for those who don't, you know, who don't plan seasons this way, I'm a little later than most. There are a lot of theaters right now that already know what they're doing in 24, yep. 25. I find it a little too far out to plan to be um, connected to the world around me. Yes. 
we have an election going on uh-huh. if you haven't been paying attention. Um, and I think there's a lot of things of like, what is going to happen in our world? Um, there's so many scary things going on and, and what headspace are we going to want to, to artists engage with and our yes. theater to engage with the world. And I don't know how the hell I can decide right now what in summer 25, the yes. mood is going to be. So I'm a little later and, and fight to be later with my team because I think that's the only way I can really get an understanding of what's happening in the future, if that makes sense. Totally. You know, I was thinking it's so weird when theaters say, we already know our next three years. I'm like, you know, three years from now, what you're going to, how, how can you feel relevant if, you know, you're right. Know, it's hard. And you have to say no to a lot of people because, because a lot of people are sending you, you know, I get about 50 scripts a week mm-hmm. coming to us being like, look at this, look at this, look at this. It's very, it's very disorienting mm-hmm. in particular when you're also doing revivals of things. Cause, cause most of my slots go or half of my slots are going to things that already exist right. that are coming from my mind. So yeah. it, it's a tricky thing. And are you thinking about artists, like whether it's directors, actors, are you thinking about them as part of the season? Like, are you often planning, well, these two shows, but only if they're attached to these specific artists? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I I, um, I sort of have a hybrid model where some are, um, like, I'll give you an example. This current season, right? We're doing a new play by Adam Rapp called The Sound mm-hmm. Inside. Great new play, thrilling mm-hmm. play. It was on Broadway before the pandemic. I had to fight for like three years to get the rights to this play. It took mm-hmm. me a very long time. I didn't. I I had an actor in mind, but I was going to do the play no matter what. And we're doing uh-huh. it now. It's fantastic. Um, Inherit the Wind is our second play, classic show. That came. That was part of my. I don't like my season, and I need to make a change. Um, and that again was my idea. I thought about doing a contemporary take on it. Right. Uh-huh. Our third show is Kate, Kate Berlant's show, The Wonderful Kate Berlant. That Uh is a show that I saw and was like, holy crap, I've never seen anything like this. This is amazing. Let's just do it. She developed it in LA. We we really focus local and she is local LA. So that made sense to us. Um, But sometimes I'm picking shows, uh, uh, the show after that's a world premiere play that I commissioned. And the commission came out of a playwright that I'm friends with, Gloria Calderon-Kellett. And she was complaining about um, Latinx theater and... and, Mm -hmm certain plays all feeling the same. And I basically said to her, well, shut up and stop complaining and write the play you want to see. (laughs) So give me money to do it and I'll do it. And we did it. So like that is completely around her and her idea. I've picked Uh plays. I've I've sent Alfred Molina, who's on my board and a good friend. I one of the great actors of our time. I've Mm -hmm. sent him five plays saying, which one do you want to do? So it's, and and I work with directors similarly. I, I always ask directors who I connect with, what do you want to be doing? What is speaking to you? Because I think that's just artistically more interesting when it's only in my head, I'm limited to my own knowledge base and the boundaries of my own thinking. Uh-huh. And frankly, that's boring. I bore myself sometimes because I know exactly what I'm going to like and what I'm not going to like. And I always want someone to challenge that and be like, look at this play. You sh-. And agents call me a lot and say, you know, read this play. This one is different. And and uh-huh. they're starting to understand my aesthetic and my vibe. So, so yeah. Well, and that's some of what you're talking about with this is the sky, this is the ground, this is the trees, or that like, as you're painting the picture, you're getting all those different colors from different artists and ideally not all coming from your brain that you're going, what this ground by that's right. Marlena. Um, before I w- we're gonna take a break here in a second, I want to dive into some deeper, bigger concepts. But um, you guys also have, seem to have a relationship with USC. Can you tell us a little bit about that for the college? Yeah, we do. We, we um, education is very important to us, and we, um, you know, one of the things the Passing of Playoffs was famous for in the 20s, 30s, and 40s was we were one of the number one schools in the country. We were an actual accredited school. Mm-hmm. Um, and everyone from Dustin Hoffman and Gene Hackman and Sally Struthers and Joanne Worley and many more came from our school. 
Um, so that has always been an important part of who we are and our building, the actual architecture of our building. Um, and I will say that when I got here, one of my focuses was our, our mission, our revised mission since I've come, it was really making theater for everyone. Mm-hmm. And the idea that everyone can be a theater maker as well. Um, and so we in cult- cultural institutions in America have really spent the majority of our money, time and resources focusing on what I would say is the people who put their 10,000 hours in, right? The mm-hmm. pros, the world-class artists, mm-hmm. those. Um, and I actually think that while that's great and the work is is great, um, we're ignoring 99% of the population. Mm-hmm. As we're telling them, no, you're all passive. You're all witnesses to our great work and our great things. And, mm-hmm. and there are people all along the spectrum of art maker. And I think the spirit of passing a playhouse and the spirit of our founder and all of the original ideals was no matter where you are on that spectrum, you can come here and move up on that spectrum Uh for personal growth, for professional growth, for your own creativity as a human being and as an artist. And so we are very intentional about that. We work with high school kids. We work with Little Old Ladies of Pasadena doing dance class. We work with USC um, mm-hmm. musical theater students. So we, um, for our Sondheim celebration, we partnered with USC. We had USC students in both of our musicals that were mm-hmm. current seniors in the program at USC. Um, and they were, you know, doing classes while um, in rehearsal for a professional production. Mm-hmm. Um, we also had one of their student productions um, was part of our festival that we we put on the bill so our audience could go see that as well. Mm-hmm. They did Sondheim on Sondheim, and that was part of our big um, festival. So, yeah, we have a very close relationship because we're values aligned in the sense of nurturing and helping th- smart theater people grow in the directions they want to be growing in. So cool. All right, we're going to take a short break. And on the back end, we're going to dive into the future of American theater. Can't wait. All right, we are back with Danny Feldman. And here we are tackling the largest subject possible, the future of the American theater. Um, But maybe before we dive into that and some theorizing and some different things I'm going to throw at you, I'm going to make you dance around and and answer very difficult questions. Um, Can we just talk a little bit about how the theater world has changed in your time working in it? Like some of the biggest from an artistic and administrative perspective, you know, what have what has changed since you were company managing all those years ago? Oh yes, um, you could hear the uh, the hesitation the in my voice, time. but no, I'm I'm a radically candid person, so I will be radically candid even if I get in trouble for it later. Um, so uh, you know, I think we're at a really unique, uniquely challenging moment for for the American theater, and and that why I answer the question about what during my time with that statement is because it has been going on for a while. Yep. Like other things in the pandemic, I think the pandemic accelerated a lot of things. Yep. Um, I think um, George Floyd and and sort of America's, I hate saying the phrase racial re- reckoning, but it truly was a racial reckoning and sure. on, on the radar of, of so many um, and advancing faster than it had in the past. And we'll see, yep. hopefully that sticks. You know, there's a lot of questions about that right now. But all of those factors together um, have really propelled us forward. Um, and for many, uh, faster than people expected, faster than some people wanted, frankly, mm-hmm. um, and slower than other people wanted, right? And so we're in the middle of all of that together. Um, I would think, I think sort of fundamentally for someone coming into the field now, um, you know, the regional theater movement was born in the 60s. I think you always have to look backwards to know where you're mm-hmm. going, right? You have mm-hmm. to understand what you're sitting on, whose shoulders you're standing on. 
um, both in terms of people and as well as institutions. The regional theater movement was born out of a reaction um, against Broadway and the commercialization of theater in the 60s. Mm-hmm. The idea that Broadway was becoming too commercial. The idea that that artists were saying, this is not fulfilling for me. I can't, mm-hmm. yes, maybe I can make a living doing this, but this work sucks. This work is not challenging. This isn't moving anything forward. And this used to be a place where we could try that. And this is no longer a place where we can do things that are fulfilling in this way. Mm-hmm. So a bunch of those artists went out into the, the regions, hence regional theater. Mm-hmm. Some of them went back home to their hometowns. Some of them um, went to new towns and, the, and following artistic leaders. And the idea was, hey, we're now in Pasadena. I shouldn't use us as an example because we're much older than that. But hey, we're now in Texas or we're now in mm-hmm. D.C. or we're here and we're going to do things differently. We're going to create a home for artists We're going to not be about the bottom line and making money, but we're going to be about finding a community of like-minded people, both artists and audiences who want to Mm -hmm. come together and explore and do cool things and be there for one another. And it would be awesome. And it was very awesome in the beginning. It really, really was. And it worked. They passed around the hat and they said, hey, everyone put some money in. We later called that subscriptions. Mm -hmm. And they said, this is how we're going to pay for our seasons. And they got enough money to pay for the season. And if they were short, they passed the hat around again. And if they had a hit, they got some extra money for next year. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of volunteer labor and it was beautiful. It wasn't taking advantage of people. It was a community saying, we're all going to do something together. Well, as, as time goes on, that really, that model stresses Mm -hmm. one, we have to start paying people more. Two, audiences, the money passing around the hat doesn't pay for the thing anymore. Mm -hmm. You got to pay for some more marketing. Um, you got to professionalize it in certain ways, right? As our prof- as theater started getting more ambitious in its physical production, how did our regional theater compete with that, right? You got Phantom of the Opera with all this craziness. How do you do that show with the Guthrie? How do you do that at the Goodman? Mm-hmm. How do you do it passing the Playhouse? So all of a sudden, designers and everything just sort of changed and things started going forward and the model evolved. And we started relying a significant portion of the budget on fundraising. And the good news is there were a lot of folks connected in the community who were like, I love this. Uh I want to be a part of this. I see the value of it. You're doing great things. And here's a big check. Um, And that model is really what we still are sitting on now. The problem is the stress on that model really started over a decade ago, Mm -hmm. that the numbers just don't work. Um, When I plan, just a perfect example for everyone, we did two musicals last year, which really cost a lot. This year, we're only doing one, Jelly's Uh Last Jam. When we put our season together, we did our first pass budget. We said, okay, we're doing these shows. What are they going to cost to do these shows? What is it going to cost to market this? What is it going to cost this? What do we think ticket sales will be? All of that. Even in a year after winning a Tony Award, thinking Uh we're like, you know, we're good right now. We're good. Our deficit was over a million dollars. Wow. There was a million dollar hole saying, even with fundraising getting higher than last year, right? You have a million dollar hole baked into the whole budget. And a lot of theaters have that. In fact, the majority of theaters have reported this coming season, major, major deficits. And that is not um, bad management. Uh That is not people stealing money, doing bad things. It's a simple fact that the demands now of what we should rightfully be paying people. Yep. Getting that closer and closer to what it needs to become to make living wages in the world and what the ticket price is and what subscriptions are. And some of us like having accessible ticket prices, so we're not charging $200 a ticket. All of our shows start at $35. Um, Those numbers don't add up anymore. Yep. And we've 
what yeah, are those numbers? I, I'm so curious of what is, I mean, million dollar deficit, my gosh, but what percentage of, of your budget are you covering with ticket sales? What with subscriptions? Yeah, it, what with donations, grants? So it varies every year. It varies and every theater is a little different, but more than half is fundraising. Which I think is not uncommon at all, right? M- most theaters do not do more than 50% of ticket sales. That's right. And so, and, and so, the, and everything is being stressed right now. And ultimately what we're feeling is years and years of a model that needed to innovate and yep. change and find new ways. Um, and, and everyone sort of thinks, oh, magic money is going to fall out of the sky and solve it. And the reality is it is not, it is yep. fixed. We are, whether some people like it or not, we're in a capitalist society. Yep. That's the world we're in. And how are we going to move forward and pay people and that and and we're at a crucial moment where theaters and smart people have to start exploring what that means yeah. and it may mean many things i don't know the answers to this but i know for a fact the current way of doing it has collapsing under its own pressure yep. and and does that mean fewer jobs but paying people more hmm. does that mean we lose, we make one set for the whole year and we're just going to live on that and make theater in a different way right now. Does that mean a lot of different things? Right. And so that is, you know, some theaters are giving up their buildings and going, what does this look like to not have the cost of a building? You know, there, some of them are serving less people than they served when they had a building. And is that okay? Uh These are all the, we're we're sort of at a, a moment where some people call an implosion. I actually look at it as this is what change yeah. feels like and it sucks it's not fun it's the hardest time to run a theater than there ever has been and i don't say that out of pity i say that it's factual it is yeah. truly challenging right now well and what do you think i mean we're kind of head faking or, or hinting at some of these different articles that have been floating around of one about the future of american theater and they basically said it needs to be government funding and then someone else says you need to not fund nonprofits at all this was in the washington post i think just yes, yesterday I saw about just give money to the artists directly you know and then the whole thing of like how does that work with unions There's all kinds of stuff to figure out i guess from the pasadena playhouse perspective assuming you can't control that the government is going to fund you or not yeah. you know like uh, what is your strategy for these confluence of difficulties? I mean, is it about increasing audience and increasing potential revenue? Is it about more subscriptions? How do you, is it about cutting costs? If you're going, I'm trying to square a $1 million deficit. Are you doing it from all the angles? Is there one angle you're paying more yeah. attention to? How are you squaring that circle? No, it's a great, it's a great point. I mean, I think, I think what, when people call, you know, that Washington Post story, I think, I think it was provocative in good ways, right? It's getting people, it's, it's, it's again saying what I just said, which was we got to find new ways of doing this. And I think that's right. I think what, what folks don't understand in big institutions, we're about a $10 million institution. The majority of our money is going to humans. Right. It is not, we're not um, spending it on buildings. We're spending right. it you on don't have a, You don't have a, you know, Bob Iger or whatever making a huge correct at the top and, of and we're not I'm looking at a very it. modest home that we're looking into from Danny <laughs> and we're not you know we're not spending it on um we yes we spend money on lights and sound and sets right. and all of that but it's in proportion to to the people we're spending yeah. money on it's going to people it's going to artists yeah. it's going to arts administrators it's going to 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 people so um, I would say some so, people's complaints some some artists complaints are the percentage of people that are administrator versus artist it has shifted in in their minds of going I think, more than money should go to artists versus administrators. Yeah, I think those people should actually look at the data behind it because I think they're wrong. I mm-hmm. think they don't quite understand. Um, you know, we have a full-time staff of the Pasadena Playhouse, for example, of 24, right? 25, uh-huh. 26, depending on the show. We have some part-timers that come in. On A Little Night Music last year, we hired over 100 people for that one show. 
Uh-huh. We did five shows that year. Uh-huh. We had a 22-piece orchestra. We had a you know 20-something person cast. We it, It's just not accurate. On every yeah. show we do, we have designers. We have associate designers. We have this. And and look, they're not, not everyone's full-time, right? But they're also working with us for three weeks, some people. And right. some people are working with us for two months. And some people... So I, I just think, um, like all things in our country right now, let's dig deeper and hold ourselves to accountability of... Yeah researching and actually looking and 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 yeah. there's people like me who will engage in it because I think we I'm very vulnerable in going we don't know all the answers of how to right. move forward I think your earlier question about how do we approach deficits how do we approach this new world everything has to be on the table because if we're here to say my job isn't just putting on five shows a year my job is making sure that the passing of playoffs is here for another 100 years mm-hmm. beyond my time and what does that mean so you have folks, you know, you have theaters that have large endowments, for instance, right? We do not, but you have some theaters that are fortunate enough to have large endowments. You have a lot of folks saying, spend that endowment money. Now, some uh-huh. of it you can't. There's legal stuff why you can't do that. Um, but also, how are the people How are the people who are listening to this podcast when they're in the field yes. going to react when that theater has spent their endowment down and they get in and have no money? Yep. So it's it's nuanced, right? Maybe you have yep. to spend some of that endowment. I'm not opposed to that. I think we have to look at these in nuanced ways and understanding that the, there is no silver bullet. That do we need more government funding? Yes. It's embarrassing how low our government compared to other governments give to the mm-hmm. arts. The, the U.S. government spends more. Get ready for the stat. The U.S. government spends more on military marching bands than they do on the entire <laughs> National Endowment for the Arts budget for every arts discipline in America. We've solved it. We just have to militarize the American theaters. <laughs> we put it in the military budget. Republicans are going to fund it, right? Come on. This is it. Come on. So so there's a fundamental shift in our culture, though, to get um, folks to put pressure on their elected officials, right? Uh-huh. Not just those of us who live in blue states, but people who live in red states. Yep. How are we going to say this is essential to what kind of culture and world we want to live in, and this is why it needs to be supported? That's a long game. You don't solve yep. that tomorrow. You don't yeah. just walk into Washington and go, give us more money. It's a fundamental shift in culture that many of us are like trying to put seeds in, in, in you know, in now yeah. to happen later. How are we, we absolutely need to build new audiences and get people coming. And we, that really stems from the work you're doing on your stage and how welcoming people feel in your institutions. Yeah. We, you know, we, ha- we play with different models of that. We have some shows that we have some of our youngest folks we've ever had. We have shows where we have p- under our average um, audience age is the majority under 50. Right. We look at under 50, over 50. Right. But then we have some that are over 50. It can't be one at the cost of the other. It has to be all. It has to be an abundance mindset. When there's a natural Uh, tension, it seems like between if you're trying to get more money, more of the money comes from the over 50 people. 100%. Sustainability has to come from the younger audiences because the over 50 are going to You can't focus on one at the cost of the other. And that is why it's, that's why when I say it's really, really hard, it's again, it's not about sympathy. It's my job. I get paid to do it. I'm fine with that. But it's, it's, uh, these are problems that people with MBAs from Harvard probably can't solve. And right. yet a music major a BA is, from UCLA. Come on. <laughs> is trying to figure it out. Um, yeah. and, and my peers are, but we're, we're making progress. It's just we're, we're in a moment of change and we need to make sure the, the theater field is funded throughout that change. Yeah. That is sort of my impassioned plea right now, which is I don't actually think what I agree with that, that, that controversial op-ed is I don't think just funding the old ways of doing it is a good investment for donors uh-huh. and philanthropy. I actually think we need to look at those of us who are saying, 
here are a couple ideas we have that yes. may work. They may not work, right. but we're going to need risk capital. Needs like innovation. if this was Apple, yeah. if this was a company, you'd throw a bunch of money to see if it worked. Yeah. Half of the ideas are going to work, half are not going to work. And you're cool with that because the ones that work will, will have a bigger benefit. So how do we fund and capitalize those looking at the future going, what if X, yep. what if Y and learn from it and then share those learnings with everyone else. We're a very um, congenial field that I'm on the phone with theaters all over the country and we tell stories. How did you handle this? How did you handle that? So I think that is key. And then and under the hood, the major changes is our artists are making more demands on institutions than they ever have. And that is correct. Yep. That's not bad. That's that's folks, um, you know, we see a white American theater as, as such a gut punch it was. It was a seminal document for the American theater. Yep. It was a group of people we all work with and know saying, we have been treated a certain way and this is unacceptable and here is a roadmap and here is a way to look at a future American theater together. Yep. And I think that is critical and that is and that is also changes you're seeing. And some of that's financial and some of it's not. Some of it's yep. just about culture and practice and how do we reinvent um, the American theater from the inside? How do we reinvent making American theater, not just producing American theater? And that is also at the same time, how do we keep our eye on that ball and not let that slip away as the financial pressures um, make life very hard? Totally. Well, and you, you we talk about future, you segued me perfectly mentioning Apple is like, how are you thinking about stuff like technology? You know, obviously it's a different conversation than like the SAG strike is over AI and some of those things, but you are now directly competing with TikTok and some, you know, the attention of um, young people. I mean, we notice it with our classes of going, getting someone to sit into a three hour class now is really difficult. Their attention span is less. It's different. It's, it, is it is changed with the young, young people. How do you think about technology? Are you thinking about incorporating it into shows? Are you reacting against it? How do you sort of see your relationship with technology in you know, the, yeah, I mean, the near future? That's a, that's a really good question. I think I, I, we look at it at a couple levels. I mean, I will say we've all noticed and I've noticed in myself a, a major crisis in attention span. And I'm hoping, hoping, hoping that we'll hit a point at some point where people go, enough is enough. And they like throw their phones Put away. The phone yeah. um, but I, I but you're not, you're not I producing also, plays where I'm texting in the middle of it to the actors and changing the, the no, things. I think there, look, I think there's a place for saying what, how can technology play a role in a story and in, in storytelling? There's some mm -hmm. virtual reality stuff where you're walking around as a group that I'm really interested in and thinking about that. Um, but I think our core element of what theater is, it's communal. It is bringing folks together to have shared experience. And I think as our world gets more and more um, AI and tech and and can't hold attention anymore, I, I would argue that our theaters and our cultural centers are the home for the antidote to that. And mm -hmm. we become even more important because you can't solve the major, major problems of our world now and in the future if you can't hold your attention span for more than five uh -huh. minutes, right? You got to read books. You got to be able to think about complex things and have intricate conversations and think. And I and, and we all know the data is very clear what direction that's headed. Cool. And theaters sitting down and watching a play like Inherit the Wind that was written in the 50s mm -hmm. um, is a harder and harder sell these days to get folks to do it. But I think it's a more and more important sell and yes. it's crucial. And I actually think we are the antidote to a lot of the problems and it's our job to make that case. It's our job to, because if it works, if people can sit and shut off their phones and we've all seen it work, 
if you can get folks to do that, they will understand and it will spread and more people will come. So I think on that front, um, we are the last bastion of that in culture. And that's yep. even more reason to fund us and keep us going. On the tech side, I, I'm, I'm very interested in where um, the interaction of theater with tech becomes in the future. It doesn't have to be an either or. It could be an and, right? Mm -hmm. We do plays. We do musicals. We also do immersive experiences. We do these things. Why? Let's have the widest tent possible to get more and more folks engaged in our work. Um, and number and th third thing on that is streaming. Um, you know, you look at it. Things like National Theater Live that streams their shows from the National Theater, that's been happening for over a decade. Mm -hmm. That's not actually new a new idea. That's an old idea at this point. Why? Um, and and there have been a lot of challenges to streaming. Pandemic accelerated it. Mm -hmm. um, it always used to be the extraordinary cost and, and frankly, um, you know, driven by unions protecting their members, trying to make sure wages are fair and all of that. But it became cost prohibitive. The idea that we would do a half a million dollar production and to stream it would cost another half a million dollars mm -hmm. doesn't exactly make sense, right? Mm -hmm. So that's really been the the um, thing preventing it. Pandemic, again, accelerated thinking, accelerated technology. And now um, I think that's within reach. I think the mm -hmm. Playhouse, we haven't announced this yet. You have an exclusive year. We will be streaming live streaming one of our shows <laughs> next season. <laughs> um, and, and the idea, again, is accessibility. The yeah. idea we can For, for a cheap digital ticket? Is it for free? How, how, do, how would this work? Um, I, we have not done our details, but it will not be for free. It would be yeah. an accessible ticket price because we value price. that. Yeah. But but why um, why shouldn't people in New York or all around yes. the country, if they want to see a place, see it? We're not saying do that instead of. We're saying right. you can't be in Pasadena tonight, so come watch it. Also, yeah. what about all the people who have disabilities or issues yes. that prevent them from leaving home? Why are we shutting doors to them? Our job is to yes. open you know, remove barriers, not add barriers. So I think that's something in the future that technology can can really play a role in um, expanding our audiences. And it feels pretty clear from, you know, my anecdotal poll of our, our students that doing that increases fandom of theater, increases their likelihood to go see a Broadway that's show right. and spend the money having experienced what Broadway is or what Pasadena Playhouse is working on or whatever they're seeing when they see a, you know, a You're right. Show. You're um, right. Let's do, should we get you even, even more trouble? Should we talk about some casting uh, questions? Um, yes, I love casting. I've been like, auditions yes. the last two days. I'm ready. All right, so here's my question with some of the, the sort of recent casting controversies that I think are sort of rocking the theater world right now. We had it with Funny Girl Tour was a big thing a couple of weeks ago, but it's been happening for the past couple of years. I think there's this large back and forth on the idea of casting, uh, which maybe, you know, let's just talk about it in terms of which kind, what kind of people can play what kind of identities. And let's presuppose, here we are two white guys talking about this, that we agree on the ends of the spectrum. In 2023, we're not casting a white actor in blackface. That would not be appropriate. We all agree on that. And let's say that like the lived experience of a murderer would not only open up a casting pool of murder. We, we, we agree on those polls a bit, right? Yes, where's somewhere, the middle? Somewhere in between at least. How do you think about that when you consider questions like gender identity, sexuality, religion? Yeah. These are all big controversies that's come up recently and people feel very strongly on both sides of this. Where do you sort of sit in terms of those decisions? You know, I come at it, I, I have seen some of that controversy and I try to stay out of the fray of it because I don't think my thinking always aligns or my approach to it and my lens on it, right? As a producer, as someone who's casting things, um, I always go back to, to what story are we telling and why are we telling it? And, and what is, what, what did the author want with this story? We, um, you know, one of our biggest successes we've had since I've been at the Playhouse was our big production of Little Shop of Horrors with George Salazar and MJ Rodriguez, right? As, as Audrey and Seymour. Mm -hmm. And 
it went a little bit something like this. I read the script. There's a note from Howard Ashman at the beginning of the script. I've probably read that script hundreds of times in my life. I've done that show multiple times. And I never read the letter or never thought about the letter from Ashman. And he basically says, treat these people as real people. Stop making them caricatures. And mm-hmm. I thought that was really exciting. And I never seen a production of Little Shop that did that. And I was sitting with a casting director friend working on another show and just said, who's Audrey today? Who is someone in pop culture and culture today that would be this? And we were like, MJ Rodriguez. Mm. It, it, we didn't really get into gender identity or anything other than who is great for that part in the way that part was written and what it was about. Mm-hmm. And I think... Um, that's the key. I think we're telling stories for a bit, for a living, right? And we are, and authors are writing those stories. Sometimes authors make problematic decisions. I'm in a place where I don't like to choose those things, so I try mm-hmm. to be very careful about what we're choosing. But you know, um, I, I think it's about the intention of the role, intention of the production, and and being aware of your community and what story you're trying to tell and what impact you're trying to have. And so for um, you, if you disagree or if you think this is coming problematic in the creator of this work, you might just say, I'm going to avoid that work. I'm, I'm just not going to bring that in and then yeah, deal or, with or, the thorny Yeah, exactly. Or what is important? I mean, we work with authors a lot when they're alive and we're doing mm-hmm. plays where they're alive. And we always talk to them. We just did a production of Stew, which was written as four black women. And that was inherent to the story that we were telling sure. was the culture and experience. So it's very clear. There's a very easy roadmap on a show like that on what to right. do. Um, and I think on the shows that are less clear, there's a lot of due diligence that needs to be done on the creative team's job of what, what are we going for for this? Does this make, is this a role that, that inherently needs to be of a certain race or of a certain gender? There's also lots of complications now that, that is on the inside under the hood that folks who are listening to this don't know about or see um, in terms of what theaters have permission to For change sure. in a show. Can yep. we change gender? I am not going to throw anybody under the bus because I'm going to get in trouble for it, but I have been working on a show for a while and we wanted to change. Um, we did not want to change the gender of the character. We were open to actors of all genders playing uh-huh. a certain character that the character was written as a man and the estate, the family, mm-hmm. the whoever controls the show said, we really don't want to do that. And they had their reasons why, whether I agree with them or not, actually doesn't matter. And so there's a moment there where you go, well, if I feel that strongly about it, I'm not going to do the play. Frankly, we are continuing to do the play because in our opinion, we just wanted to open up the broadest possibility of potential actors for that role. Uh We weren't going with an agenda of trying to do that. We just said, Uh why can't we look in this way, but it's more nuanced than I think people understand. I think yep. there's more um, more seats at the table that have authority than just the theater. Right. Well, and not always full information too. I mean, sometimes people talk about like inheritance. There's a lot of people felt a strong way of people who were not gay playing some of those roles. But I imagine that you do not ask or do secret social media research when you no, go, is this or, person actually gay? is it legally allowed? Right. Like, secretly, do I think? And it's like, well, that's not, that's tough. That's a really tricky, in the theater, it's a tricky world. Um, okay, you're done with the controversial stuff. I promise Yay. you found a way to not get canceled today. You do very politic. It was very good. I'm, pr- I'm happy um, for that. Let's play our game. We play a game with everyone and then we'll wrap with a little advice and I'll, I'll let you out of here. This is, I'm going to give you a Shark Tank style pitch, right? This is the challenge. I'm going to be your board. 
on this is for your next season or whatever, the equivalent of the I'm the Shark Tank, right? And the rule is you're going to pitch me a season that is completely unproducible. So $1 million of budget was not enough of a deficit for you. We need a much worse uh, budget here. Um, so this is your uh, producer style comedy, right? You're trying to get fired from your role, basically, uh. in pitching the season as best as possible. I want I want four to five shows that you can come up with. And ideally, not only that you could never produce, but in a perfect world that are unproducible for as many different reasons as possible. So I want you to Wait give me all hold the on, hold on, hold worst on. unproducible like shows. ideas that I actually like, but are just so crazy. Yes. The, that the one Jekyll of your Hyde brain is oh, going crazy. Here. We what don't are have the enough shows time. You go? I can do this forever. Um, we'll give me four or five. Okay, four or five. Um, a year-long festival celebrating Audra McDonald and all she's done. <laughs> Everything. With Audrey McDonald playing every part? Um, or others in tribute, but her entire uh-huh. canon. I mean, uh-huh. let's go back. Let's start with Carousel. Let's revive a uh-huh. major production of that and every play and everything. How about that? Did you pitch this to someone at some point? Me, no. Um, no, <laughs> I, I, I'm being shy. But, I, you know, we just did a big Sondheim festival, and it was a huge, huge success. Yep. And it was a prototype of more festivals, not just about yep. celebrating people, but celebrating ideas and themes. Yep. And, frankly, it was about organizing a season in new ways instead yep. of just five shows. So I've been thinking a lot about these organizing principles and how do we not just do a show. Um I want, well, see, I'm giving you, I, now the ideas that are coming to my head, I'm actually trying to do. So but so why is Audrey McDonald unproducible? What 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 would never Audrey's work about not this? not going to do a show with me, but, well, but that's just true. anyway, yes. I mean, I want to do, how about doing in rep both the Lippa and Lacusa wild parties? Same cast, <laughs> all playing different parts, same set. Okay, that's unproducible because nobody will come see it. They will not okay, so, understand so which one they're shows, seeing. There are a lot of shows that I often think about and go, this is for me and my best friend who we yes. like to sit on the couch and watch, you know, YouTube videos. Patty we'll see every production. And, They'll see every, yeah. you guys will be we there will every go, time. It yeah. is for us. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> That's a good one. I like that a lot. Uh, the, the, I jokingly had this idea, but it's actually a good idea. Um, I call it the summer of gypsies and uh-huh. we do gypsy and it's the same cast and the same set, but Mama Rose changes every week. <laughs> so everything's because, the same except Mama Rose. We just rotate correct. in and out. Because how many more Mama, like how many more Gypsies major productions are going to be in our lifetime, right? Yeah. Well, they're not going to be that many. And there's a lot of women I want to see seeing Rose's turn. Yep. So let's let's bang it out. Let's just do week after week after week of a different Mama Rose. That's pretty awesome. But you get some big names coming to do that. I think some people yes. go, I want my chance. I want my one week. I'll do so, it. So that one, by the way, not a terrible idea. I'm just saying. Yeah. Um, that's that's producible in some ways. Yeah. Um, right, give me um, one more good one. Give me one more. It could be two more if you got them, but we'll take one more. Honestly, what's going on in my head right now is I am working on a bunch, and I'm trying to filter out the ones that I don't want to talk about. I actually want to use this one. <laughs> yeah, this is unfair. Exactly. Um, I don't know. I Unproducible or producible, I'll give you one. I I think, and this is a weird one, but – but um. I recently, not recently, a couple of years ago, I watched the Howard Ashman documentary. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you saw it. Mm-mm. And I, Howard Ashman, of course, wrote all the Disney musicals, wrote Little Shop of this. Mm-hmm. And I realized that for many people my generation or my age, our entire um, formative experience of culture and musicals uh-huh. came from this one man. We uh-huh. were touched by Beauty and the Beast and Little Mermaid and all of mm-hmm. this, Aladdin and Little Shop and and... 
I don't think people know him in the way they should know him. And I've been trying to figure out what do you do to celebrate someone like that? Wow. And you probably do a bunch of big musicals and all of these things. But it's um, a, anyway. is it commissioning a new play? Or are you commissioning Maybe. some new something that's going to Yeah, my original idea was like, uh, like buyer and seller was about Michael Urie did that show and it was about uh -huh. Barbara Streisand was like, is there some figure that is obsessed with Howard Ashman and is telling his story and proving to the world that where would our where would the American theater musical theater be without Howard Ashman yep. is a very interesting question. I think about that a lot. I have a two year old right now, and that is Lin Manuel for her. I mean, the three yes. musicals that she has seen are all Lin Manuel produced movie musicals, and she is upset. She won't stop singing Moana. I mean, she just won't yeah. stop singing it. I'm like, that's that's who it is for her generation. She's going to grow up, and that's that that's person. right. That's right. Those are all good ideas. We're Those are great well. ideas. This is not an unproducible okay. season, but that's kind of the point too. You know, it's just just to get creative here. Um, I'm going to let you go to lunch here. I know we've got a lunch coming. I just want to end with a little bit of advice. Um, Maybe, you know, especially for our young actors who are studying to be performers, but also to those maybe who are looking at other careers in the arts. Just from your perspective, what do you wish um, the young actors knew more of when you said like, hey, look at the, understand the, the budget, actually do your research. Whatever. What do you wish young actors maybe specifically for their performing careers? We'll start there. What do you wish they knew more of, you know, that you now have from the other end of the table? Yeah, I think um, it, it's been said a lot, and I, I'm in the mindset of auditions because I was just in auditions. But but um, when you go to audition, um, I think there's there's obviously our business has this binary of I'm going to get the part or I'm not going to get the part, right? It's all about what do I have to do to get it? What do I have to do to get it? What's going on? And I actually um, wish folks would let that go a little bit. I know it's hard, mm -hmm. but let it go. Mm -hmm. um, there are so many things that people sitting on one side of the table are looking at when they're trying to cast a show that that don't even make any sense, right? That have nothing to do with anybody or anything. Um, and so the idea of coming in as yourself, bringing something, bringing your spark, bringing the thing you love doing, looking at every single audition as an opportunity to do the thing you love and not to try to get a part or not mm -hmm. um, is so crucial. Um, and I'm reminded of that being in auditions the last couple of days. It, it, it has always happened that someone comes in and gets cast eventually in another thing, but not the uh -huh. thing they come for. Uh -huh. um, and so it, it's just the, when I see folks getting really nervous about auditions or stressed or all of that, it's like, number one, um, you've heard everyone says this, but the people on the other side of the table want you to be good. And they, it's not just about they want you to get the part. They just want to see great talent and be good yep. and be memorable. And we're all taking notes and going, holy crap, that person for the thing I'm thinking of next season, uh -huh. that person for this thing later on, that person for another theater in town is doing X, Y, Z, and oh, she'd be great. And we talk to each other. Yep. So always look at it as a, an opportunity, optimism coming in. And and if you mess up and you need to start again or you mess up and you keep going, no one really cares. We all get it. We're sitting yep. in a weird room with folding tables. It's a weird thing. Yep. So just enjoy it. Be yourself. And it, it reads across the table that way. Did you figure out when you're saying I was, I've been sitting here trying to be fascinated with why I remember these auditions, but not these auditions, why they stuck with me as you broke that down? What is it that really makes it stick with you when you go, I can't stop um, thinking people, about that performance? People who are uniquely themselves, who come in and bring something of themselves, people who listen. I mean, I can't tell you it, how still it's a little shocking. A director gives a note that says, mm -hmm. oh, you just did that. That was great. I want you to try it again. Mm -hmm. Blah, blah, blah. It. The majority of the time, it's not that you actually did the thing not the way the director saw it. It's just right. a test to say, do you listen? If mm -hmm. someone says, I want you to try that and do it standing on your head, 
um, and then you go and do it again and you don't stand on your head or don't even try to stand on your head, that means that when you're in the rehearsal room making a play, you're not someone fun to be around. (laughs) You're not someone who's willing to play, right? So, So those are tests that are not about nailing it because often, at least when I give notes in that thing, I'm just looking to see, are you game? I'm not even yeah. looking to see always, can you nail the thing I'm saying? I want to see a different facet of your personality that this side or this scene doesn't necessarily have embedded in it. Um, and so just be open. And, and part of that is like, it's a little improv. It's a little be free in the moment. It's a little mm-hmm. be vulnerable to fall on your face and try something. And that goes a long way. It's a, it's a test that that you can't think of as I'm passing or failing this in terms yeah. of, did I achieve the thing that was asked? Yeah. It's a little bit more of a, am I game for it? So that, that feels super important to say out loud. I love it. And my true last question is just for those um, actors out there, maybe who are a little curious thinking about, maybe I'll write those checks for this weird production of bear. Or maybe I'll take the company manager position um, and, and, and explore that aspect of my artistic interest. Um, any advice for those people, maybe right out of school, sort of figuring out that, that side of things. Yeah, just do it. I mean, do like, just put on a show in your backyard, put on a show in a basement, put on a show anywhere, um, figure it out. I mean, again, dumber people than you have done it and done it well. And, and, you know, always stay curious. If you're an actor in a show and you want to understand fundraising, go ask the fundraising department. Can I sit and watch you work mm-hmm. or can I mm-hmm. take you to coffee? Can I stare at um, you while you make yes, a spreadsheet? Everyone loves, look, the secret of life, the secret is that everyone loves talking about themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Even though they say they don't. So just let them, like what you, what, what people don't find fascinating about themselves or their jobs, other people find deeply fascinating. We take donors backstage mm-hmm. to like the show and they're like staring at the props like, I don't even know. It's like, it's, yeah. They're it's like, wait a minute. Corn. Yes. Amazing. They're like, these flowers are fake. It's like, <laughs> yeah, this glass, it's like, this is not a real glass of wine. It's like glued in there with like a glue. It's like, yeah. you, what do you think we're going to put? Like, but, but all of those details are deeply fascinating to what I call civilians, to not theater mm-hmm. people. And you have to, and, and remember that that joy they're having and that interest, they are part of our ecosystem. We got to keep them joyful and excited and give them the opportunities. And you as a theater maker have to have that same curiosity and excitement about the lighting Mm -hmm. and about the set and about sound, right? How the hell do microphones work? I don't know. You Mm -hmm. put a thing and it goes through speakers and it gets really loud and someone's mixing it. Ask questions, ask Uh the nerdy designers what's going on. Um, that is so important. It makes you such a better artist when you understand and respect the people around you and know what they're doing and know, understand their artistry. It's such good advice. Um, if we want to le- hear more, we can follow you at Danny Feld on Instagram. Is there anywhere else that people should be checking things? I'm terrible at Instagram. I don't really post, but um, because I don't have time. But um, Passi- follow Passing a Playhouse because they yep. follow me and and often shove cameras in my faces and force me to do things I'm not comfortable with. And you can see that. Um, and also just follow us at Passing a Playhouse and get involved and, and reach out and we Heck can yeah. talk to everyone. And there's potentially an accessible streaming production coming your way. We'll, yes, we'll find there out. is. We've stay tuned. Stay tuned. Um, Danny, thanks so much for the time today. It was such a pleasure. I'll see you at the Mama Rose auditions for the Summer of Gypsy. I'll be there singing You'll some get one of the there. slots, maybe. I'm hoping for it. I'm hoping for it. I uh, thanks it. for the time, man. Thank you. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I hope you enjoy that episode with Danny. 
I thought he was such an articulate and affable conversationalist. Um, I did not know him at all before chatting, but I thought it was incredibly easy to have some of these complex conversations with him, even on a first meeting. So yay to you, Danny. Um, We covered a lot uh, of different topics I think we could get into, but we're already at a long episode, so I'm just going to do a short takeaway underlining some of what Danny was talking about in the kind of what I call the yes-anding of opportunities. I'm actually like shocked that I haven't chosen to deep dive this specific idea yet. I think mostly just because I don't have a unique perspective to add beyond what you might read from Amy Poehler or any good improv teacher. Um, But this idea of what we're talking about when we say yes and, if anyone hasn't heard this before, yes and, of course, an improv term and it's a technique that you would use when you're improving. But I do think it is a critically important life lesson for any young artist and really any young person in the world to learn to be able to say yes and when opportunities fall into their lap. You know, you can't always predict in advance what they're going to be, but it is one of the keys to success in being able to build a career, especially in this business, when you see an open opportunity that it seems like nobody's jumping in to do, to take that leap off of the cliff and build your wings on the way down, as we've talked about before, to say, yes, I can do checkbooks, even if you're not entirely sure what that would entail, with the confidence of youth, enabling you to fake it until you make it. You, You never know until you try. And I think very similar to the advice Danny's professor told him of dumber people than you have done this. You know, it's often in saying yes to that unsexy stuff, whether it's paperwork or admin work, payroll, could be, yeah, I'm gonna be a reader for this thing. It's not exactly what I was hoping for, but what it could turn into that puts you into a position to do some of the sexy stuff that Danny now gets to do on a daily basis. When you're talking about season selection and going to galas and all the kind of cool stuff that an artistic director gets to do. I will say that is certainly how I came to be in the position I am in now. As a very young person, I was definitely confident in my abilities, both as a teacher and an actor, and also just as a smart person in the world to figure things out. But it took me saying yes and leaping at opportunities and coming on board with this company that allow me to be in the position I am today. I did not have surety that I would be able to handle all of the challenges that I had to face in becoming a director of this team. But I had the confidence to say, yes, and I think I can. And I took the leap, right? I said yes to things that were not obvious to me that I knew for sure how to do. But I thought, thought, I don't know anybody else who can do this better. And I'm going to give it a shot. You know, and it's led to the life that I have now in which I, I truly enjoy the artistic leadership responsibilities I get to hold, whether it's with young teaching artists, you know, or with our older veteran teaching artists, with young students out there in the world. And most of that, a lot of that is due to being willing to take on some of the difficult, strategic, organizational, financial, boring responsibilities that most artists balk at. And I will just present the flip side as well. We talk about yes and, you know, if we want to get deep into the yes and, really most of what I've talked about so far is a yes, the and would be how you're adding your unique flavor to the and, right? You're adding to the scene, not just saying an enthusiastic yes, though really most of what I'm talking about here is an enthusiastic yes. But I want to talk a little bit about the no of it all too, right? You know, you've heard some of our artists speak toward this as well, which is that in saying no, you often do open up the opportunity for the right yes. So, you know, yes and is really about the bravery of saying yes, you know, not saying no just because you're scared or you're not sure you can do it. But it doesn't mean you always have to say yes at every opportunity. If you're someone who is like deeply committed to performing, in saying yes to certain side job opportunities, let's say it's a a corporate nine to five position falls into your lap, you might be truly hamstringing your ability to keep pursuing the thing that you love. In that yes, 
you are likely saying no to some future offers. And that's certainly something I've thought about with MTCA in saying yes to taking on more responsibilities on a day-to-day life with MTCA. I am potentially saying no, and I have said no to artistic opportunities, right? In that yes, you're almost always saying no. The phrase, every closed door opens another, is true. When you know, a door gets slammed in your face, another door is going to open somewhere else. But the reverse of that is true too. In opening one door and walking down a hall, you're likely closing some door down a different hall that you haven't even thought of exploring yet. So it's just worth investigating that in your yeses and your noes. In general, to young people, I would encourage the yes. I would encourage finding the leap in your spirit as opposed to the defense mechanism, which says I can't or I shouldn't or maybe is being a little picky. It just isn't perfect yet, so I'm going to keep holding out. Generally, I'm going to suggest, hey, say yes, dive in, see see what's out there. But the flip side can be true too. If you're that young artist who's saying yes too much and you're overextending yourself, you might not be opening up your life for the best yeses that could be out there. And you might need to exercise a bit of that no muscle. Um, So as in many things, there are no black and white answers, unfortunately. Also unfortunate that this concludes another episode of Mapping the College Edition, produced by the queen of yes and herself, Megan Cordier. Please rate and review us in your podcast platform of choice and follow us at Mapping the College Edition on the gram. Check us out on our website, that's mtca.nyc, for more information on coaching services if you're looking for help with your individual prep in your college audition process. To my young artists out there mapping their journeys, what is your ideal, unproducible season? Leave it in a review for us, why don't you? We'll see you next week. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.